All right, good morning, family. Uh, we're going to pick up our study in 1 Kings chapter 5, where Dad left off here. So uh, I'll go ahead and open in prayer here. Lord, thank you again for bringing us together, Lord God. I pray that you would give Dad a speedy recovery, Lord Jesus, as he's in the hospital there. And I pray that you just bless the reading of your word today and speak to our hearts, Lord God. And uh, I pray if there's uh, any words not of me, Lord, that they wouldn't be spoken, Lord, but only your words. In your name I pray. Amen. All right. So um, in the last few chapters, it's shown how Solomon's been setting up the kingdom. Uh, he received wisdom from the Lord. We saw that. We saw how he set up his officials, how much food and supplies it took to provide for his palace. And now we're going to get into the building of the temple. But first, I want to look at the reason the temple was being built. So uh, we're, I tricked you. We're not really starting in 1 Kings here. We're actually going to go back to 2 Samuel chapter 7 uh, and start in verse 1 there. I hope you guys have patience with me today. I got a lot of cross-references written down. So if you get tired of looking them up, I'll just read them to you. But good luck. All right, so 2 Samuel chapter 7 says, Now it came to pass, when the king was dwelling in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. Then Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But it happened that night that when the Lord, when the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build a house for me to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day, but have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribe of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and have made you a great name, like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own, and move no more. Nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously. Since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and have caused you to rest from all your enemies, also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, 
So Nathan spoke to David. So the Israelites had this tabernacle for about 500 years. Um, and it's interesting to me that David was the first one to think about making like a permanent uh, temple for uh, the ark and the, all the equipment that went with it there. So the desire to build a house for the Lord came from a heart of humility and worship to the Lord. David was humbled. He said, I'm in a palace, but the ark is in a tent. And so he was, his heart was in the right place there. And what was the Lord's response? He says, would you build me a house to dwell in? It's kind of funny idea to think that God could fit into a house. I feel like it's similar to like playing with a kid with Lincoln Logs, and they build a little house, and they're like, look, I made you a house. Aren't you going to get in it? And maybe you can like pretend like your hand's getting in the house, but it's funny because it's too small and it can't contain you. It's such a little thing there. So um, that's the same thing with God. That's what Solomon will say when he dedicates the temple. He said, the heavens of heaven cannot contain you. So how can you fit in this temple? But, but God honors this request. And he says, I will make a house and I will establish it and plant it. And he even blesses David for this. He says, and I will make you a house. David wanted to make God a house, but God says, I'm going to make you a house. And uh, he's talking about establishing a kingship that's going to last forever. And um, Jesus fulfilled that by being the final king of Israel from the line of David. So he's going to be the king forever now. So that's cool to see. Um, God accepted the idea of the temple. He told David that it would be his son who was to build it, though. So both the tabernacle and the temple were symbolic of heaven. And you can compare the setup of them with uh, Isaiah and Ezekiel and John's accounts of having visions of heaven and see a lot of similarities. And we'll look at a few of those today. And they were also a reminder to the people that God was in their midst. So that's the gospel story too, isn't it? God humbly coming down to earth to our level to reach out to us and save us from our sins. So the tabernacle gave an opportunity for people to come closer to God. <clears throat> and that sounds kind of funny. It's like, how can putting the ark in the tent bring people closer to him? But... uh if we look at Exodus chapter 19, verse 9. <clears throat> so this is when uh, God called Moses and the Israelites out of Egypt. And they were in the desert and he came to meet Moses on a mountain here. Before they had the tabernacle. In verse 9 it says, The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I come to you in the thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you and believe, and believe you forever. So Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes. And let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down upon the Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Take heed to yourselves that you do not go up to the mountain or touch its base. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. 
Not a hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot with an arrow. Whether man or beast, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds long, they shall come near the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and sanctified the people, and they washed their clothes. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not come near your wives. Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there was thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountains. And the sound of the trumpet was very loud, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him by voice. Then the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai, on top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, <clears throat> lest they break through to gaze at the Lord, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. But Moses said to the Lord, <clears throat> The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you warned us, saying, Set bounds around the mountain and consecrate it. Then the Lord has said to him, Away, get down the mountain and come up, you and Aaron with you. <clears throat> Sorry about that. Uh, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and spoke to them. And then if we look at chapter 20 while we're here, verse 19, it says, And they said to Moses, You speak with us, and we will hear, but let not God speak with us, lest we die. And Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that his fear may be before you, so that you may not sin. So the people stood afar off, but Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. So the tabernacle shielded the imperfect people from a holy uh, God, and it protected them while allowing them to draw closer to God. They were afraid to even go near the mountain there, but uh, with the tabernacle there, they could come close and have their sacrifices and offerings, and they were closer to God that way. And they wanted priests like Moses who would go to God on their behalf because they were afraid to draw near. And there was, so there was this need for the tabernacle. And then the difference between the tabernacle and the temple is that the temple had a permanent establishment. It wouldn't move around anymore. So God's fulfilling the promise he made to Abraham. He said that he would give Abraham many descendants and a land that would always be his. So after the temple's built, uh, people thought of the city as Jerusalem as the place that God was. And even in um, the book of Daniel, we see after they're exiled to Babylon, Daniel still prays toward Jerusalem. Like he thinks like that's where God is. He's in Jerusalem and he prayed toward that area. And even today, Jews gather, the Jewish people gather at the Wailing Wall, which is the last part of the temple, like rubble that's there from Herod's temple. And they pray there. So even today, they still see that as like the place that God dwells. So it's cool that God's fulfilling his word here to Abraham. He's making it a permanent establishment. He's building a house, and it's not going to move around in a tent anymore. So I also think uh, that the tabernacle might be a picture of Jesus' first coming, 
because it was a humble tent that moved around. And in Matthew chapter 8, verse 20, Jesus says, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So Jesus was a lot like that tabernacle. He moved around constantly during his ministry years, and he had nowhere to lay his head. He slept in boats, you know, we see, and all that. So that seems like a picture of his first coming. And then the temple seems to be a picture of Jesus' second coming. When he comes again, he'll establish his earthly kingdom and all his glory and splendor. It won't be that humble tent when he comes again. He'll come in all his glory. And it'll be a permanent establishment. So I hope that this context gets us excited to look at the building of the temple now. So now we'll start in 1 Kings chapter 5. Now Hiram king of Tyre sent his servants to Solomon because he heard that they had anointed him king in place of his father, for Hiram had always loved David. Then Solomon sent to Hiram, saying, You know how my father David could not build a house for the name of the Lord, his God, because of the wars which were fought against him on every side, until the Lord put his foes under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor evil occurrence. And behold, I propose to build a house for the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord spoke to my father David saying, Your son, whom I will set on your throne, in your place, he shall build the house for my name. Now therefore, command that they cut down cedars for me from Lebanon, and my servants will be with your servants, and I will pay your wages for you, your servants according to whatever you say. For you know there is none among us who has skill to cut timber like the Sidonians. So we'd see two things here that really got the temple work started. First, we know that David made a lot of provisions for this temple by storing up supplies and making allies during his reign as king. And it's cool to see that David wasn't discouraged when God told him that he couldn't build the temple, but he made the most of, uh, he made the most of his opportunities by making preparations. And uh, it reminds me of a story I heard of a woman who wanted to be a missionary to China. And she couldn't because she had a health issue. I think it was like a heart problem. But uh, she was a, had a job as a nurse, and she worked really hard at it. And she was able to provide for four other people to be missionaries to China. So it's cool when we see that when God closes the door, it doesn't mean the answer is no. It's just like a different door that opens there. And she was four times as effective as she would have been if she would have just gone on her own. So don't be discouraged when God closes the door because he has better plans than we do. So David prepared the building of the temple. And the second thing that got the work started was that God had paved the way for this work. He used David to conquer all the enemies around them so there would be a time of peace when Solomon's in reign. And uh, he gave Solomon wisdom as we saw. So this is all happening according to his perfect timing. In verse 7 it goes on, So it was when Hiram heard the words of Solomon that he rejoiced greatly and said, Blessed be the Lord this day, for he has given David a wise son over this great people. So Hiram's response here is so cool. It shows that David was a good witness to him. He didn't say... Uh, Oh, you're such, such a great guy, Solomon. He said, praise the Lord. He gave thanks to the Lord for this. And uh, 
It's funny, he didn't thank Solomon at all. He thanked the Lord, and he kind of acknowledged David there. And he acknowledged the Lord again for giving Solomon wisdom. But, uh, yeah, it's cool to see that that's, that's where it, what it should be. God should receive the glory, not us. In verse 8 it goes on, Then Hiram sent to Solomon, saying, I have considered the message which you sent me, and I will do all you desire concerning the cedar and cypress logs. My servants shall bring them down from Lebanon to the sea. I will float them in rafts by sea to the place you indicate to me, and will have them broken apart there. Then you can take them away, and you shall fulfill my desire by giving food for my household. So there's a subtle miracle here. How many construction contracts go that smoothly? There was no haggling. There was no disagreements. He just said, all right, we'll do that. So the Lord's continuing to provide an open door here. And uh, you can see that this guy is good at his trade here. He knows to send the logs down the river and cut out a lot of labor trying to get him to the temple there. So God really did set all this up here. In verse 10 it says, Then Hiram gave Solomon cedar and cypress logs according to all his desire. And Solomon gave Hiram 20,000 cores of wheat as food for his household and 20 cores of pressed oil. Thus Solomon gave to Hiram year by year. So the cedar and cypress wood was a very good quality wood. The cypress trees were these tall, thick trees. They were pretty straight. They were like the pine trees. And um, they'd make great poles and planks for construction. And then the cedar tree was also strong, and it was very resilient to bugs and decay. So he picked the best of the best here. And in return, Solomon gave Hiram, if you convert this to gallons, it's 125,000 gallons of wheat and pressed oil. So it was a good trade. Uh, Hiram could have easily been going through a drought or a food shortage in his land, so uh, this is a good trade for both of them. In verse 12 it goes on, So the Lord gave Solomon wisdom, as he had promised him, and there was peace between Hiram and Solomon. And the two of them made a treaty together. Then King Solomon raised up a labor force out of all Israel. And the labor force was 30,000 men. He also sent them to Lebanon, 10,000 a month in shifts. They were one month in Lebanon and two months at home. Adoniram was in charge of the labor force. Solomon had 70,000 who carried burdens and 80,000 who quarried stones in the mountains. Besides... 3,300 from the chiefs of Solomon's deputies who supervised the people who labored in the work. So Solomon employed so many workers for this project and it sounds like an otherwise move by Solomon to have these groups go out 10,000 at a time so they only are there for one month and then they get two months off. And uh, people don't seem to mind it at first but they complain about it uh, all the work Solomon had them do when his son takes over in rules. They're like, Solomon worked us hard, give us a break. And uh, that turns out to be a problem later. But uh, God warned the people in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Here comes another cross reference. 1 Samuel chapter 8 verse 11 says, Uh, here the people had come to Samuel and they wanted a king 
And they rejected God as their king, and it really hurt Samuel's feelings. But God said, hey, they didn't reject you, they rejected me, so give them what they want, but warn them first. And so in verse 11 he starts and says, this will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots and to be his horsemen, and some will run before his chariots. He will appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties. He will set up some to plow his ground and reap his harvest and some to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers. He will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, your olive groves, and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officers and servants. And he will take your male servants and your female servants, your finest young men, and your donkeys and put them to work. He will take a tenth of your sheep and you will be his servants. And you will cry out in the, that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. And the Lord will not hear you in that day. So God warned him. He said this king is going to take the best of the best that you have to offer. He's going to take your sons and daughters and make them work. He's going to take your fields, your foods, your uh, livestock. An earthly king does, uh, requires a lot to make a kingdom run. God didn't need any of those things, though, so it's kind of funny there how they made that trade. But, um, yep, so God warned them that this would happen, that they'd have to work hard for their king. In verse 17 it goes on, And the king commanded them to quarry large stones, costly stones, and hewn stones to lay the foundation of the temple. So Solomon's builders, Hiram's builders, and the Gebelites quarried them, and they prepared timber and stones to build the temple. So Solomon built this house for the Lord on a quality stone foundation. He's not cutting costs here. And the foundation is a very important part of a house. You won't get very far if you've got a weak foundation. And Solomon used the wisdom God blessed him with, and he made a good foundation for this house. Even though it was costly, it was going to be covered by a wooden floor and then later coated in gold. So you wouldn't even see it, but it's important that it's there underneath. And Jesus talked about the wisdom of building on a firm foundation in Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. So in Matthew 7, 24, he said, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. That's exactly what Solomon was, a wise man who built his, the house on the rock there. And the rains descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them he will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it fell and great was its fall. So if you build a house on the sand with no foundation, it doesn't matter how big you make it or what materials you use, it'll crumble and fall apart. The sand just moves right underneath it there. And uh, I think that's a, let me see here getting ahead of myself I think this house God's talking about is like a picture of our good works 
No matter what good or great thing we do, it doesn't matter in light of eternity if it depends on us. You know, we can't earn our salvation. But when we come to Christ and He's our foundation, then living a life for Christ will make a lasting difference with eternal rewards. There's a big difference there. It's either your works are going to be nothing and fall apart, but when you build it on Jesus, they're a lasting thing. So when Jesus is our rock, we will weather the storms, and when you build on a solid foundation, it will stand the test of time. The temple that Solomon's building here, since it's on a solid foundation, it's going to last for 400 years. And uh, they had to repair it a few times, of course, but uh, it lasted for that long. And in the end, it only got destroyed because of disobedience. Who knows how long it would have lasted if they would have uh, continued to obey and walk with the Lord. So in chapter 6 now, it says, And it came to pass in in the 480th year after the children of Israel had come out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, that he began to build the house of the Lord. So here's where we find out how long that tabernacle had been in use. It said they came out of Egypt 480 years ago. That's when God told them to build the tabernacle. So we know it's been around that whole time. And uh, now it's time to build the temple. And uh, it's also funny here that Solomon didn't start building until the fourth year of his reign. If he was an American president, it might be too late. (laughs) He might never finish the temple then. So uh, I wonder what took him so long to get started. I don't know if he was getting settled in his kingdom or making provisions or if, like a lot of people, he just procrastinates when it comes to a big project. So in verse 2 now it says, Now the house which King Solomon built for the Lord, its length was 60 cubits, its width 20, and its height 30 cubits. The vestibule... In front of the sanctuary of the house was 20 cubits long across the width of the house, and the width of the vestibule extended 10 cubits from the front of the house. And he made for the house windows with beveled frames. Against the wall of the temple he built chambers all around. Against the walls of the temple, all around the sanctuary and the inner sanctuary. And he made side chambers all around it. The lowest chamber was five cubits wide. The middle was six cubits wide. The third was seven cubits wide, for he made a narrow ledge around the outside of the temple so that the support beams would not be fastened into the walls of the temple. And so if you convert this from cubits to feet, the temple was about 90 feet by 30 feet by 45 feet in size there. And then it had that overhanging roof like a front porch on it. And that came out about 15 feet and it was the same width as the building. And it had all these rooms along the outside of the building and uh, three floors of chambers. When I first read this, I was thinking, why do they need that many rooms? But those Levites had a lot of jobs to do. They uh, needed to bake bread for the show bread. They had a, needed to store food for the priests themselves and for making the other things. They needed to make their own oil for the lamps. They needed to make incense to burn on the incense altar. And the jobs just go on and on, so I'm sure they found a use for every single one of those rooms. So in verse 7 it goes on, And the temple, when it was being built, was built with stones finished at the quarry, 
so that no hammer or chisel or any iron tool was heard in the temple while it was being built. So this shows the craftsmanship that went into making the temple. They were all finished at the quarry, and then they'd come and assemble them, and they'd fit perfectly together at the work site. And uh, if they did have finished them at the quarry, I'm sure they'd be at least a little smaller and a little easier to move. So there's wisdom in that. And then the noise of the construction would be a lot quieter since they're doing it at the quarry, so there's wisdom in that. Because uh, we'll see later that this project is going to take seven years to really finish. And then Solomon also wanted to emphasize the, the holiness of the work site there. Uh, this temple mount was Mount Moriah. That's the same mountain that Abraham offered Isaac on. And so the place of promise here where Abraham prophesied to Isaac, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. And I wanted to look at that in Genesis chapter 22. Verse 8. It says here, And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself a la the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. And they came to the place which God had told him. And Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not lay your hand on, your, on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place, The Lord Will Provide, as it is said to this day. In the mountain of the Lord it shall be provided. So uh, Abraham was commanded to sacrifice his one and only son Isaac on the mountain that this temple is being built. But God, uh, he prophesied, God will provide a lamb for us. And the, what God provided in that story was a ram. So it's kind of interesting. It's showing that God's still going to provide that lamb. And he's talking about Jesus, the son of God there. God's, and it's funny too, because Abraham was a picture of God who sacrificed his one and only son as a sacrifice in our place. So the whole point uh, of the temple was to have a place to make sacrifices to cover their sins temporarily. But God had the final solution for our sins when he would provide for himself the lamb. So that's cool how that all ties in together here. In verse 8 it goes on, back in uh, 1 Kings chapter 6. The doorway for the middle story was on the right side of the temple. They went up by stairs to the middle story and from the middle to the third. So he built the temple and finished it, and he paneled the temple with beams and boards of cedar. And he built side chambers against the entire temple, each five cubits high. They were attached to the temple with cedar beams. Then the word of the Lord came to Solomon, saying, Concerning this temple which you are building, if you walk in my statutes, execute my judgments, keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will perform my word with you, 
which I spoke to your father David, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. So this sounds like a good deal too. God's telling him that if he could do what was good and right, and those are the things we should want to do, then God will bless him greatly and do much more for Solomon than Solomon does for God in obeying. And this is the old covenant of the Old Testament. It was based on our obedience. If you obey, then I will bless. But there's a problem with that. We have this human fleshly body that wants to do bad things. And Paul said it best in Romans 7.15 when he said, For what I am doing I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. And then in verse 24 he goes on to say, O wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? So we all fail to obey eventually, but uh, the new covenant that Jesus instituted in the New Testament isn't based on what we do, it's based on what God did for us. And so Jesus fulfilled the law that we couldn't keep, and because we are in Christ, God will dwell in us and not forsake us. It's better than the promise he made to Solomon. He said, I'll dwell in your midst and won't forsake my people Israel. But with the new covenant, God dwells in us and he won't forsake us. So on to verse 14, it says, So Solomon built the temple and finished it. I'm going to stop there. Uh, Good for him. It's easy to start things. It's a little harder to continue in them, but the hardest part of a job is to finish it. And God likes to finish things. In Philippians 1.6, he says, uh, He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So don't think that God has forgotten about you or given up on you. A quality job takes time, and there's a lot going on behind the scenes that we don't see. But um, just like these stones, they were being quarried. They were being made at the quarry and then brought in and being built. But the people, you know, they didn't see all the work that was done on them, all the heavy lifting and all the cutting for those huge, heavy stones. But um, they probably took it for granted, and it can work the same for us, too. You know, we don't see what God's doing behind the scenes, and it's easy to question him and to get discouraged, but he's working in our lives when we don't see it. And when he finishes his work in us, it will be more magnificent and lasting than the temple Solomon's building here. So in verse 15 now it says, And he built the inside walls of the temple with cedar boards. From the floor of the temple to the ceiling he paneled the inside with wood, and he covered the floor of the temple with planks of cypress. Then he built the 20-cubit room at the rear of the temple from floor to ceiling with cedar boards. He built it inside as the inner sanctuary as the most holy place. And in front of the temple sanctuary, 40 cubits long, Uh, The inside of the temple was cedar, carved with ornamental buds and open flowers. All was cedar. There was no stone to be seen. And he prepared the inner sanctuary inside the temple to set the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord there. So this temple, which was 90 feet long, was divided into two rooms. First, there was the uh, outer sanctuary, where only the priests were allowed in. Here they would place the showbread on the table every day. They'd make sure the lamps wouldn't go out. And they'd burn incense every morning and at twilight. You can read about that in Exodus there. 
And so it was to be a serious picture of heaven. The bread is a picture of life and sustenance. And there was always to be fresh bread on the table. And in heaven, God's going to sustain us eternally. And the lamps were always lit. In Revelation chapter 22, 21, verse 23, it talks about the new Jerusalem. And it says, The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the Lord, the, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. There is no darkness in heaven. Um, so that was to be a picture too. You know, the priests were to continuously keep those lamps burning. They always had to be filling up the oil because that's how important the picture was of heaven. God says, uh, God wanted the people to see, you know, I'm going to be there in heaven, shining my glory forever. That's something you can believe in. Okay, and then, um, let's see here. Then the third thing was, the incense was to be burning continually. In Revelation, it talks about the angels burning the incense on the altar before the Lord. And it says that the incense is the prayers of the saints. I guess that makes praying to God a priestly duty. In Luke 18.1, it says that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. And in 1 Thessalonians 5.16-18, it says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So prayer is an often neglected ministry, and it's a ministry that people won't try to take from you and they won't be jealous of. It's a personal ministry. But when you set aside time to pray and ask God to show you what to pray for and how to pray, you'll find that it's a rewarding time. And as you seek the Lord, you become more heavenly minded. It recalibrates your brain and it gets you to think more like God and see things from his perspective. And that will change your whole outlook on life. So let's be continually offering our prayers before God. So those are the things that took place on the outer sanctuary there. That's, that's the bigger room, the front room, and the priests were the only ones allowed in there. The other room was the inner sanctuary. So it was only 30 feet by 30 feet by 30 feet. It was this cube. And uh, this is where the Ark of the Covenant would be. It would be a wooden box overlaid with gold, and in it, at least in the time of Moses, it might have changed since then, but there was the Ten Commandments on the stone tablets, and there was the jar of manna, and there was Aaron's staff that had budded and produced almonds. So it was a pretty nifty little museum they carried around with them. And uh, these were testimonies of the miracles God worked in the lives of the Israelites in the desert. So there was that testimony part of that Ark of the Covenant, that promise part. And then on top of the lid for the box, they called it the mercy seat. And that was to be like a th throne for God to sit on. They had the two angels on top of it. And they were looking at each other and their wings were touching. So um, uh, this room, though, was only the high priest was allowed in this room. And he was only allowed to go in once a year to make atonement for the nation of Israel. He'd go through the ritual of sacrificing the animals to cover their sins, uh, just like Moses had laid out in the book of Leviticus there. But in 1 Timothy 2.5 it says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. So when Jesus died on the cross with that new covenant, he made the perfect sacrifice, 
and it caused an everlasting atonement. So it made the job of these priests outdated. They didn't have to do this work anymore. And he's the only priest we need to go between us and God. And in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, it says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So I have to admit that when I was studying this stuff, I was kind of wondering why there were so many details about the temple in here. But, you know, there had to have been millions of Israelites who came up to the temple to make their sacrifices and who walked by it. And they must have wondered what it looked like inside there, what went on inside there. So, uh, And, you know, we know that it's a big picture of heaven, so God wants to share all these details so that the people could know what was going on in there. It would drive them crazy to be thinking, like, what's in there? We're not allowed in there. And uh, let's see. Uh, we see that the inside of the temple was laid with wood and gold, but the outside was just the stone, so they couldn't see like the real beautiful part of the temple probably from the outside. And then the, you know, the priests, they must have wondered what was inside the smaller room inside the temple. They were like, only the high priest is allowed in there, and they must have wondered what went on in there. Let's see... And so it's kind of sad here that uh, the Israelites of the Old Covenant were separated from God. They were divided by that stone wall. But that's what sin does. It separates us from God. In Matthew 27, verse 51, it says that when Jesus died on the cross, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That veil was this huge curtain that separated the inner court and the outer court of the sanctuary there. And when Jesus paid for our sins, and when uh, we believe on him, we're no longer separated from God. That's how much God loves us. He bridged the gap to be with us. And uh, people couldn't go back, go into the temple back then, and the priest couldn't go into the inner sanctuary, only the high priest. But we can go where they couldn't go. We get to go boldly to the throne of grace. So it's a huge blessing that God's blessed us with. In verse 20 it goes on, The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high. He overlaid it with pure gold and overlaid the altar of cedar. So Solomon overlaid the inside of the temple with pure gold. He stretched gold chains across the front of the inner sanctuary and overlaid it with gold. The whole temple he overlaid with gold until he had finished all the temple. Also he overlaid with gold the entire altar that was by the inner sanctuary. So Solomon overlaid everything with gold. The walls, the floor, the inner sanctuary, the outer sanctuary. It almost sounds like he just got carried away and couldn't stop himself. The way it listed in order there, it's like, and then he decided to put gold on this too. And it's pretty funny, but uh, I think that was God's design though. On the outside, there's this rough stone structure, but on the inside, it's full of gold and beauty and uh the outside was more practical than decorative. It had all those chambers for working and all, but the inside had the costly things. 
So I think God was making a statement with this. In 1 Samuel uh, 16, verse 7, where God sent Samuel to anoint the next king, he said, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his outward appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The heart is what God really cares about. There's so many verses in the Bible that talk about God wanting people's hearts. Um, so we shouldn't be focused on the outside. We should be focused on the inside. Just like that construction of the temple there. And uh, what was on the inside of the temple? It was a holy, beautiful place with things to glorify and serve the Lord with. And I want that to be what my heart looks like. But if I'm being honest, I don't think I'm there yet. All right, so on to verse 23 it goes, uh, Inside the inner sanctuary, he made two cherubim of olive wood, each ten cubits high. One wing of the cherub was five cubits, and the other wing of the cherub five cubits. Ten cubits from the tip of one wing to the tip of the other. And the other cherub was ten cubits. Both cherubim were of the same size and shape. The height of one cherub was ten cubits, and so was the other cherub. Then he set the cherubim inside the inner room, and they stretched out the wings of the cherubim, so that the wings of one touched one wall, and the wings of the other cherub touched the other wall, and their wings touched each other in the middle of the room. So this, cher this uh, craftsmanship here really impresses me, that they could make two identical statues exactly alike that would exactly fit in this room with one tip of their wing touching this wall, one touching this wall, and then meeting in the middle and touching and I was uh, envious of that skill because yesterday I had to build a duck house and it turned out so lopsided and crooked and there were so many gaps in the wood and all I could think of while I was studying this was they, Solomon would not let me work on that temple. <laughs> he, would, he would send me to be with the heavy burdens crew and carry the heavy stuff. So uh, there's a lot of craftsmanship in here. But this is one of those pictures of heaven. These cherubim are depictions of the angels that guard God's throne in heaven. And you can read about them in Isaiah chapter 6, Ezekiel chapter 1, and Revelation chapter 4. They each describe them a little differently, so I didn't study it enough to see if they're actually different angels or if they all just saw them from a different perspective. But uh, the point is that God's throne has angelic servants serving him and praising him. And you wouldn't want to mess with them. So on to verse 29 it goes, And he carved all the walls of the temple all around, both the inner and outer sanctuaries, with carved figures of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. And the floor of the temple he overlaid with gold, both the inner and outer sanctuaries. For the entrance of the inner sanctuary he made doors of olive wood. The lintel and doorposts were one-fifth of the wall, the two doors were of olive wood, and he carved on them figures of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers, and overlaid them with gold. And he spread gold on the cherubim and on the palm trees. So for the door of the sanctuary, he also made doorposts of olive wood, one-fourth of the wall. And the two doors were of cypress wood, two panels comprised of one folding door, and two panels comprised the other folding door. Then he carved the cherubim, palm trees and open flowers on them and overlaid them with gold applied evenly on the carved wood 
And he built the inner court with three rows of hewn stone and rows of cedar beams. So it's interesting to compare the layout of this temple with the culture of its day. I'm sure that pagan temples look nothing like this. And uh, eventually, when the children of Israel were disobedient long enough, God punished them by letting them fall into the hands of foreign kings. And when kings would conquer other kingdoms back then, they would plunder their temples and take their idols uh, and add them to their collection. And it must have been a really funny picture, because what would they find when they break into this temple and go to back to that Holy of Holies? All they see are two big cherubs and then a little Ark of the Covenant. So they must be thinking, uh, they must have been thinking, where's their God? Here's the temple, here's some guards, here's a pedestal, but no God. But, uh, so it would have been a funny sight, but we worship the invisible God, the almighty God who can't be taken captive by mere men. And so uh, that reminded me when Jesus said to store up treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not corrupt and where thieves do not break in and steal. And uh, at the time, God probably wasn't even in the temple because the people didn't hold up their end of the covenant, obeying God by walking in his statutes and executing his judgments and keeping his commandments. So God didn't have to hold up his end of the agreement either there where he said he would dwell among them. So it's sad to see all this building and getting excited about it, but then thinking of the future in the next couple books and chapters here where they disobey and it all gets torn apart. In verse 37 it goes on, In the fourth year the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid in the month of Ziv, and in the eleventh year, in the month of Bol, which is the eighth month, the house was finished in all its details and according to all its plans. So he was seven years in building the temple. So in addition to the rooms being gold-plated, Solomon also had these other designs he had carved into the wood and then the doors and... Uh, it kept going on there, and it took him seven years to complete this project. Even with the 180,000 people he had working and having the outsourcing of going to Hiram for the wood, it still took a lot of work. And in John chapter 2, uh, verse 13, I like to read this passage while the building of the temple is fresh in our minds. John chapter 2, verse 13 says, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. And he had made a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that this was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. 
So it took Solomon seven years to build his temple. It took the Israelites after the exile to Babylon 46 years to build their temple. But Jesus claims he could do it in three days. So the people laughed at him. They said, you're going to build it in three days? And uh, they wouldn't have destroyed their precious temple, of course, though. <clears throat> they put so much work into it. <coughs> and you know, that's where they would go to get right with God. But that process wasn't working. Over the years after Solomon built the temple, and as different kings rose to power, just like we said, uh, they would bring idols into the temple and turn it into a place of pagan worship. And God punished them by allowing them to fall into the hands of foreign kings. And they would plunder the temple. And some of the Israelite kings plundered it themselves because they didn't have faith in God and wanted to hire mercenaries. The one king stripped the gold off the doors to pay for that. And even in this passage, we just looked at in John's gospel, the temple, was, uh, the temple worship was corrupted. The people had turned it into a marketplace. So Jesus said, destroy this temple. The temple that he himself was zealous for, the place that he sat in and the place where he was served by the Levite priests, they might have well have destroyed the temple because uh, Jesus was going to do a new work. And when they destroyed his temple by nailing it to the cross, he was going to rip the veil and become closer to them than they have ever experienced before. So uh, after his work on the cross, he wasn't just in our midst anymore. He came into our hearts. He allowed us to go from the outer courts to the throne room of grace. So thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you, Lord, for being in our midst, Lord, for being in our hearts. Thank you, Lord, that you will complete the good work you began in us, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that you've not forgotten about us, Lord. Thank you for caring for us, Lord God. Lord, I pray for these believers here today that you would strengthen and encourage them, Lord, through the trials they go through, Lord. That you would show yourself strong on their behalf, Lord. And I pray for uh, my dad, too, Lord, that you would touch and heal him, Lord Jesus, and help him through the trials he's going through, Lord God. And I thank you, Lord, that you allow us to come before your throne of grace. In your name I pray. Amen.